good morning again and welcome. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5. That's what we'll be looking at together this morning. In my car, I have a bumper sticker that I picked up from a local eating establishment that says, um, eat right, exercise regularly, die anyway. <laughs> and then it says, so enjoy, and it goes on to name the restaurant. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of funny. And of course, I get the point of the emphasis upon eating right and exercising daily and maybe getting a few extra years for all your efforts, maybe. But I also get the point of the bumper sticker. We've all got death in our future, no matter how rightly we eat, no matter how much we exercise. It's where we're all headed. Some of us are going to get there sooner than others, but we're all on the same train, headed for the same destination. It's a sobering reality, and unless you happen to believe in God, in the reality of life beyond the grave, it's a fairly depressing reality. But for those who do know God, death, while still daunting, is not and does not have to be a source of either paralyzing fear or hopelessness. Quite to the contrary. There are real reasons to be hopeful. And those reasons are highlighted in the verses before us this morning. Verses that give us a little more clarity on what is often a perplexing subject. That is the issue that is before us this morning. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, please guide us now by your spirit into your truth. Help us to see and retain good things from your word this morning. We thank you in advance for what you will do and how you will use these things to shape us and make us more like your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. For his sake, amen. Well, we're picking up this morning with this, uh, as I've said, this uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, starting at the first verse of chapter 5, working through to verse 10 of the same chapter. Up to this point in this series, we've been working with the understanding that, in the main, this letter was written by Paul to both describe and also defend his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the reason he has to do this is because his ministry is under attack by self-appointed religious impostors who had moved into Corinth after his departure and who were presently stirring up the Christians there, creating all sorts of trouble, including doing things to undermine the people's confidence in their founding apostle. Now, in terms of how all this works out, structurally speaking, in the letter, there are three large movements in this letter. In the first part, Paul is describing and defending his practices and his decisions, some decisions that he's made as an apostle. 
Following that, there's a larger section where he describes and defends his perspectives. And there's a number of them, but, a number, but these perspectives that guide him as an apostle. And finally, he takes time uh, more near the end to describe and defend his position, his authority as an apostle. Now, currently, we're kind of uh, fully immersed in that middle section where Paul is describing and defending some of the perspectives that have guided him, which continue to guide him in the things he says and does as an apostle. We've already seen a number of these in earlier studies. For example, one perspective that guided Paul was his conviction that the real power behind effective ministry is God and God alone, working in and through ordinary people. But ultimately, the power is from God. Paul's uh, firmly believed in that, and because he so firmly believed in it, it shaped the way that he did ministry. Another perspective that influenced Paul and which flowed out of uh, that the one just described was Paul's conviction that the clearest proof of an effective God-powered ministry was the changed and ever-changing lives of people touched by that ministry. Still another perspective of Paul's is that one of the marks of genuine New Covenant ministry, alongside the external mark of transformed people, was the internal mark of freedom. The kind of freedom that is experienced when the liberating truths of the gospel begin to infiltrate and inform every area of a Christian's life. All those things we saw in these earlier studies. In our most recent study of this letter, as we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18, we saw some additional aspects of Paul's apostolic perspective. We saw how Paul persevered as he did, even when he was struggling greatly, and he did so because he understood that it is not in the midst of human strength, but in the midst of human weakness that God's power is most clearly displayed. His being given over to death through the various hardships that he faced was what demonstrated the very life of Christ within him, even as he responded to these difficulties with a faithful hope that, although sometimes faint, could not be extinguished. And in that previous study, we saw how the hope that Paul had now, in the midst of this life, was nevertheless not confined to this life, but actually spilled over beyond this world, beyond the grave, and looked ahead to a glorious future. Paul's hope looked forward to a resurrection that was as sure as Jesus' own resurrection. Paul's hope looked forward to a restoration that despite the external decay of our present bodies was taking place spiritually and inwardly day by day. Paul's hope looked forward to a glory that was so substantial and so weighty that it would cause the burden of any trouble carried in this life to seem only light and momentary by comparison. Paul's hope looked forward beyond what the eye could see toward things that cannot be seen yet but which will be seen. And so having already begun to talk about things beyond this life Paul continues in that same vein here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Let me read the first five verses. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent 
we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Paul starts out here by saying that if the earthly tent, by that he means the human body, our bodies, but if the earthly tent um, is destroyed, if this temporary dwelling place in which the soul is housed is destroyed, God has a replacement. He has another dwelling place, another body, that unlike this one, is not the product of human reproductive processes, but is actually created by God himself. And further, while these present bodies have a use-by date and a limited shelf life, the new bodies that God has for us, for his people, are permanent and eternal. Now the reason Paul says if, it's not because he has any doubts, about the unavoidable nature of death, but because Paul is still, at this point in his life and ministry, he's still holding on to the hope and the possibility that Christ might well return in his lifetime. And for those who are fortunate enough to be alive on that day, they will not experience death or the destruction of the body, but instead they will experience the transformation of the body which we'll say more about in a moment. But for now, please don't miss the significance of Paul's referring to our human bodies as tents. Paul, you know, was a a tent maker, right? That's what he did. In modern terms, we would say that Paul was a bivocational missionary. For his particular context, while he could have justifiably been supported as a full-time gospel worker, he chose not to do so and instead supported himself largely through his own work, which involved making and mending tents. And as a tent maker, Paul knew only too well how temporary tents were, how easily they broke down and become torn and ragged and eventually had to be thrown away. Tents, by their very nature, are not meant to last. They serve a purpose for a time, but then they're discarded. God's people in the Old Testament had seen this played out in their own history as they wandered around the wilderness with a tabernacle that God instructed them to make. And this tabernacle really was just a very elaborate tent which for a while was the focal point for their worship. But this lasted only up until the time when a more permanent temple could be constructed, at which point the tabernacle, as glorious as it was, was discarded. God's people had seen this. And so Paul says, our bodies, right, these things, this stuff, is like that. It's useful. It's important, yes, but it's also temporary. It's not meant to be something that we overly invest ourselves in or cling too tightly to or fuss too much about 
or get our self-worth from. That's one reason why Paul says elsewhere, for while bodily training is of some value, some, a little bit, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this thing, right, this body that we presently have, isn't supposed to last forever. It's not indestructible. It's not immune to disease. It breaks down. And don't we know it? Which is why Paul says, in this tent, we groan. When I was a kid, I'd often laugh at the way my parents would always emit uh, some sort of sound when they bent over to pick up something. You know, some sort of grunt or groan or similar noise. And I laugh because, you know, when I wanted to pick up something, I just bent over and, and did it. Didn't feel any need to accompany that with some kind of soundtrack. But they always did. Well, those days are dead and gone, I can tell you. And now when I bend over or reach up high, I find these little exclamations coming out of my mouth almost involuntarily. And the older I get, the louder the outbursts are. I now understand what was going on with my parents. They groaned for the same reason I groaned. Because this tent is breaking down. The joints aren't what they used to be. The flexibility isn't there anymore. And every pain, every twinge, every grunt, every groan reminds me of this truth. And there's this very real, very deep longing for the day when that won't be true anymore. I watch little children playing. I see them jumping around, diving on the ground, tackling each other, wrestling, crashing into things. And I see them get up and do it all over again, seemingly without consequence. And I think about how if I were to do the same things, I would be in traction for a month. I try to remember, you know, what it felt like to be that young. I try to remember what it was like to feel that good. And the good news is that there is a day coming when I, we, all of God's people will experience that again. Every deficiency, every limitation... Everything in this body that reminds us that it's a temporary dwelling, all of that is going away. Every bit of it. It's all being replaced. And that's what Paul says he longs for in verses 2 to 4. But even as he says this, all right, even as he says it, Paul is very aware that he needs to be clear about what he does and doesn't mean. Paul knows only too well the very popular notions that were circulating in his day, rooted in Greek philosophy, and which had a very different view of the body and soul than his own. Paul understood that many people in Corinth would have held the view that the body 
and the soul, that the soul was, or sorry, is a good thing, something to be desired, but the body was a bad thing. Kind of a, the body was kind of a fleshly prison from which the soul needed to escape. And so what many people in Paul's day hoped for at death was a kind of soul nakedness, if you could put it that way, to be completely disconnected from any kind of material or bodily connection. That's what they hoped for. And so Paul, not wanting to sound like that, not wanting to sound like just another Greek philosopher, goes out of his way to make it clear that while he does long to be delivered from this body, he's not at all wanting to be bodiless. He doesn't want to be naked in that sense. What he wants is a new body, a better body. What he wants is what was foreshadowed by Christ's own resurrection. A body that is fitted for heaven. A body that is suitable for eternity. One that does not wear out, that does not break down, that will not be the cause of groaning and dismay, but of praise and glory to the God who made it. And we see within these particular verses a further reference to what has already been hinted at in verse 1, to this transformation that will take place for those who are alive when Christ returns. Notice Paul's language here. He talks about putting on in verse 2, like... A person might put on a heavy overcoat on top of a lighter shirt. He talks about what is mortal being swallowed up by life. Indeed, what Paul is describing here is the sort of thing he's already talked about in the previous letter to these same Corinthians. Maybe you remember this. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Every one of us has to be changed. Every one of us. Because this flesh, Paul says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's not suited for heaven. It's the wrong equipment for eternity. So we have to be changed. And for those who die before Christ's return... That change will take place at his return as their bodies are resurrected from the dead. But for those who are alive at the time of Christ's coming, they will not see death. They'll be instantaneously changed, as Paul says, instantaneously, in the twinkling of an eye. And the reason Paul talks about these things, both in his previous letter as well as this one, is simply because that is what Paul is longing for. It's what he's hoping for. He doesn't say this because Paul claims to have any special or certain knowledge about exactly when Christ is going to return. He says it simply because if he had his druthers, as my grandmother would say, but if he had his druthers, he would rather be around when Christ returned than go through the ordeal of death. Personal preference. So what we see peeking through in these verses 
is that personal preference of Paul's for how things would work out if he had a choice. As one writer helpfully puts it in Paul's mind, as he makes clear in other places, such as Philippians 1, 20-24, it was good for Paul to be here in order to continue serving Christ. But in Paul's personal opinion, it would be better if he could die and be with the Lord, but what would be best would be to not have to die at all and instead be alive at the time of Christ's return. So Paul's way of thinking, there were no bad options, to be sure. But that didn't mean all the options were the same in his mind. Let's read a little bit further into the passage. Starting again in verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You know, given the fact that Paul is talking about things which as yet are unseen, things which have not yet been personally experienced by either himself or by those to whom he's writing, he includes in his descriptions here a brief but important word of encouragement. He says that the God who has planned and prepared for all these wonderful things that he's just been talking about is the same God who has given them his spirit in the present and as a guarantee, as a down payment, as a foretaste of things to come. This is the same spirit that Paul describes in Romans 8.11 as the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same spirit spoken of in verse 16 of the same chapter in Romans and who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the same spirit who is spoken of even further on in verse 23 of the same chapter when it says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul does here what he also does in the letter to the Romans. He connects the gift and presence and work of the Spirit within God's people. He connects that with the coming redemption of our bodies. When we see and experience the fruits of the Spirit, we see the Spirit's presence working within us and we know that presence, we see those things, we ought to take heart Uh, and see them not only for the blessing that they are now in this life, which they are, but also for the promise that they are for the future. It's on account of this that Paul can say with full sincerity, verse 6, we are always of good courage. However, even as you hear those words, please hear them in the context of what Paul has already said. We're always of good courage... Right, But the Paul who says that is the same Paul who just said that he groaned with a longing to be rid of this temporary body. So reflecting on this kind of interesting combination of groaning on the one hand and confidence and courage on the other, one writer makes this observation. Realistically, we'd have to say that the true Christian's attitude towards their own mortality and that of others is, like Paul's, a combination 
of both groaning and confidence. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus, who knew exactly what was going on. He knew what was going to happen. And he wept. Therefore, grief at bereavement cannot be a sign of a lack of faith, since Jesus had perfect faith. We groan because we sow in tears and we do not yet reap in joy. Evidently, this is part of the broader groaning of creation referred to in Romans 8.22, where the process is likened to painful childbirth. Something good will come out of it, but the pains of labor are upon the Christian. We are realistic about the sorrow and suffering of bereavement. At the same time, we have the confidence spoken of In verses 6 to 8. Such is the reality to which Paul's words point. And you see, it's just here that Paul, who's been speaking in counterintuitive ways all along, but it's right here where he kicks it up a notch. To be sure, Paul has already been talking about life and death in ways that I've said are contrary to the way the world typically thinks about these things. But here, those contrasts are even more pointed. See, we live in a world where death is a taboo subject. The more shallow we become as a society, the more our culture is defined by the triviality of our pursuits the more unwilling and incapable we have become of thinking or talking about things of any serious moment, not the least of which is death. As one writer has observed, up to the 19th century, it was okay to talk about death, but not about sex. From the 20th century onward, it's been okay to talk about sex of every possible variety, but not about death. Why? Because we as a culture are terrified by it. We don't know what to do with it. And that fear, which we keep covered as best we can by means of this ongoing, mutually agreed conspiracy of silence, but that fear causes us to put all the momentum, all the freight on this side of the life-death equation. This life, here and now, this is the thing to be held on to, the thing most highly to be valued. What happens after this life is a thing not to be discussed, not to be considered, and certainly not something to be looked forward to. Which, again, is why Paul's words just here, are so counterintuitive. Because what Paul says here in verses 6 to 8 takes the world's way of thinking about these things and turns them completely upside down. Notice what Paul says. He says, we are of good courage, and then he looks ahead to the reality of death and what lies beyond this life, and he doesn't shrink back, which is what the world does, He does what the world considers crazy and he leans forward. He talks about this world and this life not as the thing to be preferred 
but as the place where as long as we are here, we're missing out. While we are at home in the body, says Paul, we're away from the Lord. We're missing out. To Paul's way of thinking, it isn't this life and this world that are superior and much to be preferred. It's the next one. He wasn't shrinking back from death. He was leaning forward. I think there's real encouragement in that. And please note as well the further encouragement to be found when Paul, by contrast, makes the same point in verse 8 that he's just made in verse 6. We would rather be away from the body, says Paul, and at home with the Lord. Right? So not only is it encouraging to see Paul's counterintuitive perspective on death, but please note the clear implication of verse 8 that when God's people do die, they go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Immediately. Those are the two options found in these verses. You are either here in this body and away from the Lord Jesus, or you are away from this body and you are with Jesus. There's no place in between, no purgatory, no place of nocturnal slumber. And so Paul's words here provide the additional encouragement that the person who dies in the Lord not only ceases to struggle, they have entered immediately into a new and everlasting, glorious existence in the presence of the Lord. Their walk of faith, which is the way all of life is lived on this side of the grave, but that walk of faith is now accompanied by a walk of sight. They see him. So if Paul's right, if it is this life, it is this world that are inferior to the next, if the Christian posture is to lean forward and to look with hopeful anticipation toward the surpassing glory of things we cannot even see, what does that mean for now? What is the perspective we should have while we're here. Paul sums it up in verses 9 to 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says, in essence, that the purpose here and now, while he awaits the move from a good situation to a better one, the best one, indeed, is fairly simple. To please the Lord. That's Paul's goal. That's his aim. And please note what Paul doesn't say here. He doesn't say that his aim is to wallow in the knowledge that he is already pleasing to the Lord. Now, to be sure, there is a sense in which Paul is already and always pleasing to the Lord as all of God's people are when, because we are in Christ. Okay, so there's no question about that. But Paul had something else in mind here. The pleasing that Paul has in view in these verses is that which comes about as a consequence 
of how he lives his life. It is the result of the deeds done in the body, which one day will be subject themselves to the judgment of Christ and will result either in some sort of reward or the lack thereof. And in saying these things, Paul's only repeating what he's already said to the Corinthians in his previous letter. Remember this from chapter 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, whenever you talk about these kind of things amongst Christians, it's important to be careful. I know that. I find that Christians tend to get nervous and worried when you start talking about things like judgment and reward and good works. So in case you're worried, we might be going off the rails here. Let me ease your mind. As the passage just read makes clear, there is no foundation other than the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And the judgment in view here is not concerned with that. It's not concerned with a person standing in Christ. That part is settled. That part is absolutely secure. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But as one writer puts it, saying there is no condemnation is not saying there is no judgment. It's simply saying that whatever the outcome of the judgment is, it can't be and it won't be condemnation. So the judgment here is not about the foundation. It's about what's built on the foundation. The things done in the body, whether good or evil, as the passage puts it. Or as another commentator says, it's not the loss of salvation that is at stake here, precisely because salvation cannot be lost. What is at stake, however, is the loss of commendation. Paul is not talking about a person's eternal destiny. He is talking about the reality of eternal reward. Or the loss thereof. I think sometimes we are reluctant to talk about these kinds of things because we're afraid of being accused of misunderstanding the gospel, of having a wrong motivation for our Christian lives. But Paul wasn't afraid to talk about these things. Paul wasn't afraid to employ these truths, believe it or not, as a means of motivating himself and others. And in emphasizing these matters, Paul is only echoing the teaching of Jesus found in several different places on the matter of people being good stewards of the gifts and talents that have been entrusted to them. You know those passages. And here's the problem. In our reluctance to talk about these things, in our reluctance to take Paul's words at face value sometimes, what we miss is the very real pastoral benefit to be found here in two directions. One direction is negative and is seen when we take seriously the fact 
that how we live our lives actually matters. Imagine that. There is, there will be an accounting, a day of reckoning, with apparently very real consequences. And while salvation is clearly not at stake in this particular judgment, something is. Otherwise, Paul would not have said the things he said. It's clearly something that potentially could be had or lost in the accounting. The other direction, the other sort of pastoral value to be found here is more positive. Because it seems to me, is precisely when we are, are in the midst of great trial and difficulty, as Paul was. It's precisely then that we most need to remember the fact that there is a day coming when all of the books will be opened, all of the books will be balanced. A day when we will know in a tangible way that our labors really weren't in vain. That our faithfulness, that our keeping on, hanging on, really mattered. That all the suffering wasn't for nothing. And remembering that, and even finding hope and motivation to persevere on account of that reality, is not wrong. It is not sub-Christian. It is not anti-gospel. It is deeply biblical. Yes, we are meant to do all that we do for the glory of God. Absolutely. That is always our ultimate goal and motivation. And one day, that motivation, the glory of God, will mean a lot more to us than it does right now. And the reason for that is obvious. Because we have not yet begun to see or appreciate God's glory like we one day will. What we know of God's glory now is not even close to what we will know when we stand before Him. Which is why along with that primary motivation, and as long as we are in this world, with these broken hearts, and these decaying bodies, and in this vastly incomplete state of sanctification, and with such a limited understanding of God's glory, while we are still in that kind of place, it is helpful to remember and be motivated not only by the glory of God, but also by the things that Paul talks about here. The very real prospect of judgment and reward. And it's helpful precisely because we are so weak. Because we do not yet see God's glory as we will. There's no doubt in my mind that when the day comes and when we are in the presence of God. And when we do see His glory as it truly is. No doubt in my mind that Judgment and reward and all that stuff is going to fade right into the background. I have no doubt about that. But God knows us. He knows our frame. He knows not only where He's taking us, He knows where we are right now. And He deals with His children in an understanding way. So do not shrink back from Paul's words here and from the encouragement to be found. Take them and receive them for the comfort and caution that they truly are. 
Let's pray. Father, please help us to continue to um, think about and wrestle with these things that we see in your word. Um, Follow us home. Follow us out of this room with these truths. Press them upon our minds and our hearts. Make them a part of who we are how we think, how we live. We thank you, Father, for this. We thank you for your goodness and grace to us, most especially in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Those who are taking up the offering will come forward. We'll receive that at this time.